Good morning. How many sleeps until Christmas? Everybody counting? Okay, seven, six, seven. Depends when you celebrate it. Okay, excellent. This week I have a very un-Christmas-like text to unpack uh, for us today, but it deals directly with God's love, and I think very powerfully. Let me give you the background. You might think your family is dysfunctional. No show of hands. I don't know how you're feeling about getting together. We call them the rallies, the relatives this Christmas. Um, But let's put the fun back in dysfunctional, shall we, and think about Christmas I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, sometimes holidays can be happy and can be a little bit tense or even worse than tense. But the family I'm going to tell you about this morning likely trumps your family. We're going to start reading in the... We pick up the story in the book of Second Samuel, chapter 13. And this story is about David. Remember, he's a young guy who takes on the giant Goliath, and he wins with God's power behind him. It's an amazing story. And the events we discuss today are... David is a central character, but it's, it's many years later. Now, king David is well-established on the throne by now as king. He has several wives and many children and grandchildren. Now, as a warrior, a poet, remember he wrote a lot of the Psalms, and as a king, David really is without equal. He's an amazing guy. Talk about a Renaissance man. He could do so many things so well. Unfortunately, he was not a great success in the parenting department. You would not find his picture on the cover of Parenting Today magazine. We all have our weak spots, and this is one of David's. In chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, one of David's sons, uh, his name is Amnon, he seduces and rapes his half-sister Tamar. Her life falls apart, and she seeks shelter in the home of her full brother. His name is Absalom. Keep those two guys separate. Amnon and Absalom. So her life is ruined. And Absalom is furious about this injustice. And what makes matters worse is that King David appears to do absolutely nothing about this horrific crime. The Bible says that he is furious, but there seems to be no consequences for this terrible sexual assault that destroys the life of his own daughter. Where there is no justice in the land, people tend to take matters into their own hands, and that's what exactly what happens. Now, it's been said that revenge is a dish that's best served cold. I hope you don't live like that, but that's how Absalom lived. So he waited two years for his revenge on Amnon for this terrible thing he did. And two years later, he had Amnon murdered in cold blood, premeditated murder. The hitmen did it, and Absalom had to flee the country. Are you feeling warm and Christmassy yet? Just wait. It, gets, it does get better. It, hang in there. 
Three years later, uh, I mean, it, King David naturally mourns the loss of both of his sons, but especially Absalom. He had been particularly fond of, of Absalom. And three years later, David's trusted advisor, Joab, sees how the king is still grieving this broken relationship. So he, plat- he plans a little scheme. King David is not the kind of person you would approach directly and say, hey, king, I have an idea. Joab is shrewd enough to recognize that. So here's what he does. He hires a wise woman, that's how the Bible describes her, from a village about 20 kilometers away to tell the king a fictional story of another dysfunctional family, her own. The story goes like this. She is a widow and she has two sons and they get into an argument and one son kills the other son. Now the whole clan wants revenge and they demand justice. They demand that the only surviving heir she has be killed to avenge this murder. That would leave her totally destitute and desolate. So she goes to the king and tells him this made-up story to win his confidence and sympathy. She grabs him, hook, line, and sinker. And if you read the story, she goes on and on and just kind of, in a good way, kind of lures him and grabs his sympathy and wins his heart and says, listen, no one's going to touch you. No, we'll, we'll make a special exception in this case. No, one's, no harm's going to come to you or your son. You won't be held responsible for this. If anybody has a problem with this, let him come to me. And then she says, oh, oh yeah, oh, king, there's, there's just one more thing. Yeah, tell me what is it. He's feeling very magnanimous by this point. Yeah, what is it? What could it possibly be? Well, your son that you had banished three years ago would you consider bringing him back? Wow. And in a few minutes' time, David interrogates her and figures out that it's his aide, his advisor, Joab, who's put her up to this. And to make a long story short, he welcomes back Absalom from exile. But in the midst of this whole story is a very powerful verse that describes, I believe, so well the character of God and his love for messed up people. Now think about it. In the middle of this story of a dysfunctional family, there's, in the middle of this muck, there's a bright light. And it's 2 Samuel 14, 14. It's worth memorizing, putting on your fridge, in your bathroom mirror, wherever you look at stuff. Put this in your phone, Okay? Be a good screensaver on your computer. It goes like this. This is what, this, is what the, this woman is explaining to the king. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. She's explaining to the king, I know that, you know, three years ago, your son ran away because he had his half-brother murdered because two years before that, he raped his half-sister. And it talk about a reality show soap opera gone bad. Now you know where all the Hollywood writers get their plots, through, through broken people in the Bible. 
Now, none of us can relate to being from a messed up family, so I'll just tell you this story about someone else, right? But in the middle of this dysfunction, like a bright light hangs this verse that is so important for us to understand the character of God. Like water spilled in the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. So, what does this biblical soap opera reality show have to do with Christmas? And why am I basing this sermon on the words of some anonymous woman who is hired to deceive King David? It's because she's speaking truth about the character of God. This is truth. So listen up. In the name of Jesus, people, listen up. If you don't get anything else today, remember that verse. What's the reference? Okay, I need a little louder. Where do you find that verse? Okay, 2 Sam 14.14. Really easy to remember, right? 2 Sam 14.14. Go home, memorize it, save it, get it in your head, and especially get it into your heart because this is God's word for us today to absorb and then apply to our lives, okay? This is his secret weapon. In the middle of this sad story, he plants this love bomb set to explode in our hearts. So that's what I'm... It's lobbing love bombs at you. They're from God. Well, kind of from me too. But listen, listen, listen. So why such an unlikely character to communicate God's grace? Well, if you pay attention to the Christmas story, it's full of unlikely stories. You can't make this stuff up. Mary, godly young virgin peasant girl, no one would really notice her if you're pastor on the street. Uh, Joseph, in her God-fearing, he really was a stand-up guy, Joseph, her, her fiancé. But, you know, he was a tradesman and good on him, but just kind of a regular guy. The local union of shepherds. <laughs> These guys were legally unreliable witnesses to the greatest outdoor musical spectacle in human history. And legally, they weren't even allowed to testify in a Jewish court. So who's going who's gonna to believe this motley group of shepherds? Couldn't God have found somebody better? Anna and Simeon, we talked a bit about them last week. Just two humble folks who prayed and prayed, and they're great examples of trusting in God's faithfulness for decades. Then the wise men, a caravan of Persian astrologers who thought they could figure out what was going on by looking at the stars. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, God's not really into astrology at all. In fact, he thinks it's garbage. But God uses that. He will use anything to accomplish his purposes. And he did by bringing the wise men all that way to worship Jesus. So what an unlikely group of people. You know, these wise men, they spooked the local puppet king Herod and their visit actually caused a bloodbath in little Bethlehem a little while after Jesus was born. So honestly, none of our successful public relations firms would have chosen any of those unlikely people 
to spread the news about Jesus. You would think God would have done, you know, kind of a better job of that. So why not some unknown wise woman hired to confront the most powerful, most renowned king, human king, in the Bible? So what do we unpack from her words? Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. What does this tell us about the nature of reality? Well, first of all, here's the good news. Death is inevitable. It is. Death is inevitable. Um, I was at a burial on Friday, and Victor's family said goodbye to Victor. We all did. Death is inevitable. Like water spilled on the ground. Have you ever tried to recover water that spilled on the ground? Good luck. Maybe on your kitchen floor, you could kind of mop it up. But on the ground, it just goes, oh. Now, Manitoba gumbo, it tends to stay a little longer, and it's a great place for breeding mosquitoes. But that's another story. But generally, water, once it's spilled on the ground, you can't get it back. And that's what this woman was saying. You know, we only go around once. We only go around once. Not much we can do about it. But... God does not take away life. Think about this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's God's desire that everyone come into a right relationship with him. Everyone. He doesn't love some people more than others. I know, I've all told you in the past that you're his favorite, but don't tell your neighbor that. It'll just muddy the issue. But God wants all people to be brought back into a a healthy relationship. Now, there's two categories of banished people. There are those who have never heard about Jesus and those who have heard and still reject him. And because of our sin, we kind of self-banish ourselves from God. We do it. Our our sin separates us from God. Our our foolish, self-centered actions and deliberate disobedience of God's laws. And even when we sin in ignorance, we separate ourselves from God. We banish ourselves. We do it to ourselves. And if you don't believe me, Watch the news. If you don't believe me, go to Christmas dinner with your family. If you don't believe me, you know, hang out here long enough. You know, we're regular people. We mess up. If you don't believe me, you can watch me for a day. No, maybe not. I don't want to disillusion you too much. But it's just a fact of life. We sin. We mess up. But God does not take away life. That's not where his heart is at all. He expresses his displeasure as we make bad choices. But we're not banished from his love. So we may not be in his direct presence, but we're not banished from his love. So here's the kicker. Watch this. Instead, God actively seeks this out. God seeks ways to reconcile with spiritually lost people. 
Why did Jesus come? What's the whole point of Christmas? To stimulate the economy? To help us with our year-end donations in December so we get caught up with what we've been stingy with the rest of the year just for the tax men? What, what's the whole point of Christmas anyway? It's this incarnation thing that, that theologians talk about. God becoming incarnate, in flesh. God becoming flesh and blood. One of us. God with us. Not God way up there. God with us. How are we going to know what God is like unless you read about Jesus and talk to him and try to watch what he did and watch what he said and see how he interacted with people? That's why Jesus came in the first place, right? For centuries, God had dealt directly with people. He was trying to shape a people, the, the, the Jewish people, and he sent them prophets and leaders and kings and That didn't always go well, but he was working in them patiently, patiently, patiently. And he said, you know what? You guys, I give you the Ten Commandments, not as ten suggestions, but ten loving boundaries so that you can prosper and do well and we can be in a relationship with you. But you're you're not getting it. Now you know there's a sense of right and wrong and, and, and it creates a sense of, oh God, I can't be good on my own. And God promises, you know, one day I'm going to put a heart of flesh in you instead of a heart of stone. And, and you're going to change your attitudes. And, and I'll come and live in you. And I'll guide you. And I'll be with you all the time, each one of you. Not just in one specific place, geographical location. But I'll be with you all the time. And this promise that God with us, Emmanuel, it's one of the names for Jesus, right? Will actually happen. And so God has always been seeking ways to reconcile with spiritually lost people. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come to reinforce the uh, unhealthy religious behaviors of the status quo. The whole idea that we could be good enough and if we were religious enough and kept enough laws that somehow we'd earn our way up the ladder into God's good books. He broke the ladder. He blew up the... He, he actually fulfilled the law. He didn't destroy the law. But he said, you know what? If you are in relationship with me, if you follow me, you will become a new person inside. And the Holy Spirit will change you from the inside out. So God actively seeks ways to reconcile with spiritually lost people. That's his character. And I love this this phrase where he says, God actually devises ways for banished people to be reconciled with him. And and again, it's, it's the ultimate example is the incarnation, where God is actively seeking for us. This is what God's love looks like. Three characteristics from this story. God's love is persistent. He stays at it and stays at it and stays at it. The Bible says God's mercies are new every morning. I think God comes up with, he he continually shows his favor to us and his love. If we are awake while we're awake, think about that. Are you awake while you're awake? Are you just conscious, kind of. You know, it helps not bump into things, especially when you're driving. It's good to be awake. But are you awake when you're awake? Are you awake to the reality of what God is doing? Are you paying attention? 
Do you have any God sightings in your life? One useful practice that you can start building in if you're going to start polishing up your New Year's resolutions early is do something called the examen. At the end of the day, you can talk to your partner or friend or whoever, email, text them, do it in person. Where did you see God today? Where did you see God? It just helps you be aware of, whoa, what's going on? And you look back over the day, where did I feel closest to God? Where did I feel furthest away from God? Huh. And then you do it the next day and the next day, and you just build this habit of being aware of what God is doing. But God's persist, then you'll be able to recognize God's persistent love pursuing us. God's love's proactive. God's not sitting up some chair going, oh man, when are these people ever going to get it right? Uh, man, maybe it's time for another flood. Uh, no, I promised I couldn't do that. I'll find some other way of starting it from scratch. God's not feeling that way. He's not even thinking that. God is proactive. It's a little bit like the Bear Clan. You're familiar with the Bear Clan in the North End? And in Point Douglas, they now have the Mama Bear Clan, which is kind of cool. They go out looking for people who are missing. And it doesn't matter what ethnic background they are. They just look for people. That's what God is like. He's proactively looking for us. And he's not satisfied until he finds us. If you have any friends, or if you know of anybody who's on a search for God, encourage them. Encourage them. And I tell people who are looking for God, I say, man, you know, start reading the Bible and praying, saying, God, if you're there, please show me you're real. Legitimate prayer. If you're there, show me you're real. But what I don't tell them is, shh, don't tell them. It's a little bit like the mouse looking for the cat. But they'll find that out later. After God pounces on them in love and says, I gotcha. See, God is proactive as he searches us out. He proactively looks for us. And that's a beautiful thing. So he's persistent, proactive. Finally, God's creative. God is a creative God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He hasn't stopped being creative. I think God is very creative in the way he interacts with us. The Christmas story is so creative. Like I said before, who's going to make this stuff up? Some young woman who's not even married and is a virgin has a baby. What? And these, these guys from a far-off kingdom look at stars and think, wow, something's going on in Judea. We should go there. And a bunch of nobodies and working the graveyard shift see a whole bunch of angels that nobody else sees. Who's going to believe them? And they come at all these unlikely people, all these unlikely things. Because, as I've said before, God did not kick down the door at Christmas. He kind of snuck in through the back window very creatively. So not to startle us or overwhelm us, but to lovingly invite us into relationship with him. Because the way God does things, the way God does things talks so much about his character. The fact that he's persistent and he's proactive and he's so creative in the way he loves us. Now we can learn something from that, right? We can learn something from that. If you've received even a smidgen of this love from God, think about it. God proactively searching you out. 
God persistently loving you day after day after day. Even when we mess up, God still loves us. And he's creative. He loves us in new ways. He brings different people and different circumstances into our lives to transform us and change us to be like Jesus. He's very creative. He keeps at it. That's how God loves. Just a final thought to give you something to think about. Ephesians, I believe it's Ephesians 5, the beginning says, Dear brothers and sisters, be imitators of God. What? How do we imitate God? I can't create a galaxy in my spare time, go to my workshop, and I'll put a couple of planets together. That's not what he's talking about. Be imitators of God. It means imitate God's character. What have we learned about God's love today? God's love is persistent, proactive, and creative. He will help us live out, work the implications of this love out in our closest relationships, in our neighbors and friends, extended family, over Christmas dinner, (laughs) or in different situations like that. He will. We need everybody on deck here for Christmas Eve, whether you're able to be here or not. Why? Because we are trying to persistently proactively and creatively love people into the kingdom of God. And we're praying for at least 350 people to occupy this space here on Christmas Eve. God's doing that. The numbers are edging up and I'm getting a little bit nervous, but in a good way. And I'm also nervous, a little, not scared, but it's like there's great importance because this is a time when many folks will cross the thresholds of a church building and think about, oh, it's Christmas. For whatever reason, they'll be here. Now, entering a church is not the only way you start a relationship with God. I know that. I know that very well. But 350 people are going to be here on Christmas Eve. Can we all commit to pray? And maybe even bring somebody and make Pastor Justina's heart sing by signing up ahead of time and saving space. I know it seems a little bit unusual, but it's pretty exciting anticipating what God wants to do in Christmas Eve. But please be in prayer for that because we serve a God of love who is persistent, proactive, and creative. And we get to be in on that. We get to be junior partners in God's ministry of reconciliation to the whole world. What an awesome job description. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in the middle of family dysfunction, your light shines. And I pray for all the families, the extended families represented here in this place this morning. We pray your blessing on them. And I pray that you would remind us consistently of your character, how you love us, pursue us in such creative ways. Will you give us the grace to live that out? In Jesus' name, amen.